WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The U.S. House of Representatives has been very, very busy during the coronavirus pandemic, and the response will continue. Today, we're going to hear from three women who represent Michigan in Washington in the U.S. House. A little later, we'll talk with Representatives Brenda Lawrence and Haley Stevens. But first, we want to welcome Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat from Detroit who represents Michigan's 13th Congressional District. Congresswoman Tlaib, always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So let's start with you giving us your assessment of the federal pandemic response so far, especially when it comes to financial assistance. Stimulus checks were a way to get cash out to people making up to a certain income, but there's a lot of concern that the assistance meant for small businesses has gone to big corporations and that businesses owned by people of color in particular have been really shut out of those funds. I I wonder what your assessment is of how we're doing with all of this so far. Well, I think folks need to realize, uh, you know, the first of the month is uh, Friday. Uh, It is um, going to be really hard for a lot of families, primarily because we already saw in April a third of our neighbors could not pay their rent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Close to 17 million people had filed for unemployment benefits, and we know more and more continue to do so. Uh, And we have like close to 4 million people that haven't been able to pay homeowners that haven't been able to pay their mortgage payments. That's just a, you know, kind of an overview of just a handful of, you know, hardships that we know our families are facing right now because of this pandemic. You know, we, we don't want to even get into the student debt and, sure. and some of the other issues and bills and uh, continuation and seeing folks. And we hear more and more folks, consumer report, just a, a story about uh, more families are going to face water shutoffs across the nation. And we already have 15 million folks that uh, face water shutoffs. One of 20 Americans are uh, face that issue around lack of access to water. And so, This is something that I think, you know, for someone like me that represents frontline communities that have already been kind of in survivor mode, this global pandemic just kind of taken over the edge of those, you know, for for many families that are being directly impacted. So they want to see direct help putting themselves first, the people first. Uh, And that's what, you know, why I think CARES has not gone far enough and Mm. deep enough and aggressive enough and for it to be sustainable. You know, you see other nations doing reoccurring payments. And I introduced the Automatic Boost to Communities Act, where it would be, you know, debit cards uh, with $2,000, again, for every single person, including your child, uh, during the pandemic. And then after the pandemic, when the pandemic is over and praying that it will be soon, but it won't be for a while. And even after it's over, the hardship, the, the kind of harm that we're seeing currently on all our, a lot of our neighbors won't uh, stop either. And so we need to continue, again, investing in people. And so we recharge those debit cards for $1,000 a month. That's the kind of aggressive, inclusive, you know, approach to it. And the debit cards, I mean, Stephen, right now I have people that are um, getting these hidden fees with banks and all these other things that they have to go through. With the debit cards, you, there is nothing. It, it's literally money on the card, mm-hmm. and it helps um, address the fact that 25% of Americans are underbanked or unbanked. You know, we have that issue, still continue to have that issue. And 
I want my folks to be accessible, to be able to order food online, to be able to support local small businesses. And a lot of my neighbors, you know, representing the third poorest, uh, now many of my neighbors are considered the essential workers, where yeah. before they were considered unskilled workers, right, you know. Right. And this just continues to be un- so unjust because these are the same people before the pandemic were saying, please give me health care. Please give me $15 minimum wage. Uh, you know, I deserve to be able to retire. I, I have to work at some of these fast food industries, you know, for 40 hours a week. That's their career. That's their job. And now they're considered essential workers. I mean, so for many of us, members of Congress, yes, we've been passing these uh, uh, large amounts of money, but uh, from small business loans, uh, Stephen, to the continuation supporting hospitals, all that needs to happen, but it's not enough. Uh, the money for SBA is already falling apart and, and running out of money. And then, again, the small pop and mom shops are not getting access. Uh, the hospitals are saying, look, we can't keep up. But more importantly, and we're talking to the uh, hospitals later today, is the fact that it's not lucrative to take care of sick people in our country, Stephen. I mean, this is this is like a pandemic. You would think that somehow hospitals were able to, you know, be able to make, you know, because that's how they're set up is kind of a for-profit scheme within mm-hmm. our healthcare industry. But unfortunately, I have a hospital, Beaumont Wayne, still closed in my district in a, one of the neighborhoods near Inkster and Wayne and Garden City. And those folks are completely cut off, don't have places to go get their, get tested, including in Westland. So there is a huge kind of awakening uh, of showing the economic divide, showing that we have, you know, sick care in our country, you know, just kind of a broken down healthcare system because the for-profit scheme is just not lucrative to take care of sick people. And, you know, we continue to see uh, a lot of the proposals come through just not being aggressive or more as inclusive as I want it to be. Uh, And yeah, it's, it's really difficult sometimes hearing the stories from my residents. Yeah. So, so you and I have had, conversations before about things that don't make a lot of sense that we do when it's when there's not a pandemic and one of them of course is is water shutoffs here in the in the city of Detroit everybody it seems was aware when we restarted water shutoffs that the risk of of doing something like that was a public health risk first and foremost that Denying people access to water is encouraging all kinds of danger in terms of disease and especially the spread of disease. And now we're seeing, we're seeing exactly what those consequences look like in cities like Detroit. I guess one of the things I've been wondering about the last couple of weeks, though, is how much we're learning from this now. In other words, once this is over and we get to some some state of normalcy again, do we go back to doing things that don't make a lot of sense? Or do we say, well, we need to, we need to think of these things differently? And it's not just water shutoffs. As you point out, the way we value people who uh, do essential work, which we, you know, as you point out, we were calling them unskilled workers just a few weeks ago. Now they're essential. Uh, the idea of giving people support, financial support for their lives whether they work or not. Uh, How do we get to the space where we're going to be able to actually have conversations about changing those things permanently 
regardless of whether there's a pandemic, uh, in order to make sure that people's lives are more sustainable. I'm starting to worry a lot about that because I don't know, I guess I don't know how we get there. I don't know how we how we move to the space where we're actually having that conversation and there's actual legislation that could change the way we deal with all of these 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 challenges. Absolutely. And, you know, for many of us, we don't want to go back to so-called normal because we didn't believe that was normal in the first place. I mean, like I said, many of my neighbors were in survival mode. Many didn't have health care, you know, the broken economic injustices, environmental racism wasn't normal. And so, you know, Sonia Renee Taylor had a beautiful quote about, uh, let's not go back to normal, my friends. Let's create a new garment. Um, and I, I hope that's what happens. But, you know, one thing of being only there for about a year, uh, year well, it's a year and a half now of, you know, being a member of the United States Congress, the one thing that you instantly notice when you get there is the lack of urgency. You know, I, I get off fresh off of knocking doors, talking to people in my neighborhoods, saying, please do this. P- you know, get, get us $15 minimum wage or shit. Can you fix the broken immigration system? Did you know this happened to me? I could not afford insulin, and my brother died uh, because he couldn't get his insulin. You know, these are the real-life stories that are, were happening prior to the pandemic. So when you get there, you're like, let's get this fixed. You know, we've been studied enough. We get it. We know what's broken. Let's get it fixed. The one thing that this pandemic has seems to kind of ignite is that sense of urgency. And that's so unfortunate because I find not only when I was six years in the Michigan legislature and now in Congress is that many of my colleagues are reactionary. We wait until there's an emergency Mm. for us to finally say, yeah, maybe we should look at guaranteed income. Maybe we should be looking at reoccurring payments. You know, something is wrong uh, with the health care system because one thing I was being constantly told, not directly, but through actions, through how my, you know, various like waters of human right bill was being treated, right? It was, let's wait. Uh, there was this constant, and you, know, you hear my residents say, how long do you want us to wait? Hmm. You've been asking us to wait. And, you know, this is for both Democrats and Republicans. And I'll tell you, our residents have been saying enough, like this has been issues, and now it's been exacerbated. You know, when people are staying in the mass incarceration, you know, they were trying to deny access to reoccurring payments to those that have, you know, uh, 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 felons and, 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 and Mark. And I, I was like, one of three Americans have some sort of encounter with, sure. you know, the, the, the for-profit mass incarceration system in our country. I mean, what, what does that say right now about, uh, uh, you know, the reality of the fact that, you know, corporate greed has been a disease in our country for so long, and it comes in all different forms. And, you know, finally, I think there seems to be a sense of urgency. Uh, but it, it is, to me, until I can see this next CARES package really be centered on people and mm-hmm. local communities and uh, to talk about water in a way that is a permanent fix, you know, because so many of us are pushing for moratoriums, Stephen, but those moratoriums, you know, after three months or four months, maybe a year, you, you're not paying your student uh, loans. You, you don't have to pay your mortgage or your rent. When when the pandemic is over, you're still going to – that amount of money is not going – you're still going to owe that debt. Right. That's, that's, and that is so dangerous. You know, of course I support moratoriums during this time, but I don't want it to be seen as some sort of fix. It's not. Uh, folks are still going to have to pay probably more 
later because then we're going to have to fight these for-profit entities and putting late fees and all these other things to try to get their money, you know, uh, back. I mean, that's the problem now, I guess, you know, in all kinds of areas that our, our, our neighbors are really, uh, you yeah. know, struggling with. But, yeah, you know, Stephen, there, there, they, there seems to be kind of reactionary because we're talking about on a call yesterday about medical debt. Myself and Congresswoman Katie Porter mm. have bills, uh, you know, writing committee. Mine, mine passed the Financial Services Committee. Finally, there's like, okay, maybe maybe that should be part of the next package. So there is a conversation. And then the water, the human rights bills, finally, you know, Speaker Pelosi saying, well, okay, this is, a new, this is something we should be actually looking at as probably part of the package. And again, it's, it's a permanent fix. Uh, that's one thing that I encourage my colleagues. It's great you all want to do these different programs, uh, absolutely, but let's not think Band-Aid here. This is a pandemic. Yeah. This is not going anywhere for quite a while. So. Yeah. Uh, I also want to ask you about uh, the EPA and other environmental regulatory agencies kind of backing away from some of the regulations that keep – air clean and water clean in our country. That has particular resonance in your district, uh, in in the part of Detroit that you represent in in particular. I I wonder what you make of this this idea that because industry is suffering because of the economic consequences of coronavirus, that somehow we shouldn't be enforcing environmental regulations that, again, are about keeping people safe and and respecting public health. It's absolutely absurd. Just think about it for a moment. And it's not some environmental laws. Basically, Trump, within that's one of the first things he did, the Trump administration, the first thing they did is issue an order saying, Hey, don't enforce EPA, don't enforce EPA laws. Don't enforce the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Don't do that. Uh, back away. It's, it wasn't a capacity issue. It, it was, uh, you know, to me, it was a decision because that's the culture that want that this administration has put forward. Let's put corporations first. This this has nothing to do with the pandemic. This was an opportunity. They used it as an opportunity to help these large scale industries. My God, if you think about it for just one moment, when people say to me, why is the predominantly African-Americans in Michigan being impacted uh, so much? Forty percent uh, died, passed on from COVID. And we make up less than, you know, African-Americans make up less than 20 percent or 15 percent of the total population in the state of Michigan. And I think for a moment, I look at them and I say, what are you talking about? 4217 is the most polluted zip code uh, in the state of Michigan, predominantly African-American uh, neighbors. And you know, they're already dealing with as high rates of asthma, uh, pre-existing conditions, respiratory issues. And, you know, and then here comes the pandemic and you wonder why they're dying at a higher rate because environmental racism exists. You know, look at where these corporate polluters are going to, are going to be continued to be unchecked under this administration. I mean, the, Congressman Andy Levin and I wrote a letter, much support from the Michigan delegation. Everybody signed on saying you, this is not the time to do this. It's actually the opposite time. This is a time we need to be watching over uh, these corporate polluters, uh, especially because this is, you know, again, a public health crisis in our nation, and we need to be able to maybe step it up. Actually, I would have thought you would step it up versus uh, going back and saying we, we, we're not going to do this right now to the industry. That makes complete no sense. Mm. Uh, and it's really absurd that that's one of the first things that the Trump administration thought was a priority. Mm. 
Uh, I want to talk a little politics with you because we are in a presidential year, despite all of the things that are going on. Uh, Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee. I wonder what you mean, what you think that will mean for the issues you're really passionate about. I know that you were supporting uh, another candidate in the Democratic primary, but give me your assessment of, of Biden as, the de- as waving the Democratic flag here in 2020. Yeah, you know, I have been a person that always is so centered and focused on issue campaigning. Uh, and one of the things that I know is going to help turn out and motivate uh, the 13 District Strong is focusing on Medicare for All, uh, focusing on one fair wage, focusing on, you know, a just and fair immigration system, focusing on, uh, you know, really um, uh, uh, targeting, um, you know, poverty in a way that is, uh, transformative, uh, you know, Medicare for all, all of those issues, we're going to continue organizing around, elevating, because no matter who wants to be president of the United States, these are issues that we want them to take on. So, I mean, that has been my primary, you know, focus. And I think that is going to benefit and somewhat be like, uh, and hopefully an extension of what uh, uh Vice President Biden wants to take up in his agenda. I think we can't let up, especially during this time, uh, on these bold ideas that, you know, I supported Senator Sanders because he didn't take corporate PAC dollars, but he also brought on the national stage issues uh, of urgency. Everything he's been saying about the broken systems and how it has been very painful for the direct people that are now the frontline folks that are suffering the most because of the, because of these broken systems during this pandemic. And so we, you know, I know my residents are so much more motivated by focusing on those issues and focusing on, you know, making sure that we, you know, that the Trump administration doesn't continue to succeed, um, but not letting go of some of those values and those issues, depending on whoever the Democratic nominee and here it's Vice President Biden. We can't let go of all the progress we've had in getting more support from labor, more support from other entities around, you know, closer to universal health care and again, closer to one fair wage and some of the other issues I think are really critical for folks. Are are you confident that Joe Biden can close the deal with Democrats who supported Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or or one of the other candidates. I mean that that seems to be the million dollar question. What, what what kind of things ought he be doing to make sure that people come out in November and vote for him? I'm only confident in the people. I'm confident in the people that the 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 more uh, I know that they're engaged, the more that they feel part of the process. And the way you do it is through issue campaigning, talking about the issues that matter to them. They will turn out and they will make sure that we don't have another four years of the Trump administration. And that's what I have confidence in, as my neighbors, my people. Uh, I saw a huge 80 percent turnout in the last election. And I really think it's because of those three ballot measures that we had on the Michigan ballot. I mean, most folks don't look at the numbers from the previous presidential election. year in 2016, but a lot of people skip the top of the ticket. And I got to make sure that doesn't happen again, because, you know, watching my state go uh, red the way it did uh, was pretty devastating, Mm. uh, especially because we birthed, you know, the labor rights movement. We birthed some some incredible movements that have brought up the middle class, especially for African-Americans in this nation. So it it is something that I know I'm very confident in, in my folks and 
and my residents continue to advocate for water, continue to advocate for some of these other injustices and saying this is what needs to be center uh, in any administration in the future. And, you know, it, it is something to watch. Um, people rely so much on, you know, an individual and folks, and I keep telling them, you know, I learned from Grace Lee Boggs that transformative change doesn't happen in the halls of Congress, nor does it happen uh, in the White House, in the Oval Office. It really happens in the people and the mm-hmm. folks demand it. Because no matter who's president, we still have to continue that to get that structural change that needs to happen that we see now its ugly face has come about because of the pandemic. Uh, again, we've been experiencing it, but now folks are like, well, why is that happening? And, you know, none of us are laughing in the background. We're all, all saying, well, we've been wakened by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, before this pandemic, we have been woke uh, for a while and, and come with us and join us and <laughs> saying, okay, yeah, maybe we should be looking at Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question. Uh, we have a, a listener who is curious about who you would choose as a vice presidential candidate. Joe Biden has said he will pick a woman to to run with him uh, on the Democratic ticket. Uh, I, I would imagine that you have colleagues in the Congress who might be on that list. Our, our own governor here in the state of Michigan is somebody who has been, been talked about. But if it were your pick... Who do you think would compliment him the best in November? You know, uh, uh, Stephen, one of the things I love about my new colleagues, you know, uh, this new class, you know, a lot of people say this is a historic class, largest incoming class since Watergate, ironically. But what I love about them, it's not because they're first Native American women, first Muslim women, you know, youngest elected. And again, these are amazing accomplishments, historic accomplishments. However, most of them didn't run to be first of anything they ran on their lived experiences. Hmm. And one of the things I, you know, love when I see one of my colleagues get up and say, you know, my mother died of breast cancer because she could not afford to go to the doctor. She didn't want to because she was so worried. And again, another colleague gets up and says, you know, I've never had health insurance until I became a member of Congress. Uh, Another says, I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I say this to you because Whoever it is has to have those lived experiences. Because one thing that I know about my colleagues, and you wonder if things going to be different, but when the majority, when over 250 of my colleagues, senators and House members, are millionaires, hmm. they're in an income bracket that is completely disconnected with the American people, they wonder, well, why don't they have savings? I mean, literally, one person said that. I said, what are you talking about? They live check by check. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wonder why certain things are happening. And, and it's because there's a huge disconnect and we feel it. I know folks feel it right now during the pandemic. You're wondering, well, why wouldn't they have passed that by now? Why, why are they supporting a broken system like the SBA program that continues? I mean, continues to just fail our smaller businesses and, and our minority-owned businesses. So I want whoever the vice president to be to have lived experiences, real-life experiences, and understanding of uh, mm-hmm. what it means right now, the trauma, the pain of oppression in our country, the reality of that. It has to be someone that gets it in that sense. Again, uh, that to me is so critically important, and that person is going to be able to connect with my residents in 13 District Strong. I know it. So it has to be that person. When folks think deeply about that, I know they'll, mm. and if he does do it based on that, I know it will be the right choice. Yeah. Okay, Rashida Talib, Congresswoman from the 13th District here in Michigan. Always great to talk with you. I hope you're doing well. 
during all of the madness of this pandemic. But thanks very much for being here with our listeners. No, thanks, and I hope you're well as well. Okay, we'll talk with you soon. Up next, we're going to talk with Congresswoman Haley Stevens about the federal response to the pandemic. Stay with us on Detroit Today. One oh one nine WDET, Detroit's NPR station, celebrating seventy years of radio in Detroit. This is Detroit Today on one oh one nine WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We just spoke with Representative Rashida Tlaib about the concerns about how the first round of funds for small businesses were distributed. We're hearing that a lot of minority-owned businesses were largely shut out of that help. And we're also hearing that Michigan businesses got a smaller share of the funds than other states based on population and total payroll. So how can we make sure that that doesn't happen again with this new round of funding? That's where we want to continue the conversation here. And joining us to talk about this next round of stimulus is Congresswoman Haley Stevens, a Democrat who represents Michigan's 11th district in Congress. Uh, Congresswoman Stevens, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you, Stephen. Good morning. Yeah. So uh, let's start with this question of how the PPP funds were spent. There are a lot of people I know who own small businesses who have a pretty bitter taste in their mouth about uh, how that first round went. Uh, give us a sense of how you think this second round will be improved and whether Michigan businesses will get their fair share. Right. Well, let's, let's take a look at one of the components of the CARES Act, which was the Payment Protection Program, as, as you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, allocated uh, for small business lending to secure the paychecks of uh, the, the, the individuals employed at said company that uh, it was experiencing a downturn in revenue that's been just unexpectedly hit or having a change in business, uh, business interruption because of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, a program that would traditionally run through the Small Business Administration was allocated through the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, utilizing Small Business Administration websites. And monies were to be allocated through the banks. And so we passed the CARES Act on March 27th, and within a week, a snap of the fingers, because this money was so urgently needed. And there was a formula for how it could be spent in terms of some flexibility, um, though not a lot, but some flexibility around um, paychecks and other other business expenses for for companies. And uh, there was a, a flood, a rush. And as somebody who worked in the Obama administration at the U.S. Department of the Treasury during uh, another economic crisis, uh, Stephen, all I need to do is close my eyes and feel like we're right back where we were when we were passing the small business uh, 
acts of 2010, mm. going through and administrate, administrating uh, TARP dollars for the, the big kahuna, which was the Recovery Act, mm-hmm. and monies that were going to companies back in 2009, or monies that were going to municipalities, and all these things to secure the critical assets of this nation. And in this specific instance, um, we we saw this 10 years ago when programs got overprescribed and they were popular and the money would run out. But really, in that 10 years ago, it would take a lot of time for, for, for monies uh, to, to run out. Um, it, it really wasn't, um, you know, as quick as what we saw um, just in the last month with the payment protection program. And what also happened with that is that the administration side of this was that the websites went down, the banks were prepared, and that's not to excoriate the banks. Uh, they're also operating in this environment. Now, they're frustrating a whole heck of a lot of people. And, and for those listening, your, your bank knows you're frustrated. We know you're frustrated. <laughs> and we're operating in such an environment you know, we don't want to be in a rush to villainize anybody. I don't want to be as an elected official, but also understanding what's going wrong here. What's what's failing us in this uh, with this program? Now, we here within a, a week or so of this program being administered that from the Senate Majority Leader, um, the self-described Grim Reaper, Mitch McConnell. But here he comes. He goes. <laughs> I need $250 billion more. That's a quarter of a trillion dollars uh, for, for small business that we, we didn't have enough um, in, the, in this program, which was interesting because, you know, look, we were all at the, you know, the, the House and Senate were at the table on the, the design of this. Um, but, you know, no matter, okay, we need, we need more funding for this which we got done, we got allocated um, in an interim package last week that we passed, not only for small businesses, but also for hospitals and for testing. And, um, and, and of course, that, that, that sort of played out over, over the week. Hmm. Uh, but in this instance, um, there, there was a lot of difficulties. There's continued difficulties with people getting to their bank, uh, getting to their lender, getting the proper information. And in part, the Treasury just never worked with the banks to set up the, the proper uh, websites so, or, 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 or administration, right? So you take Comerica Bank, uh, used to be a Michigan-headquartered bank about 10 years ago. Uh, they, they moved their enterprise down to, to the quartered enterprise down to, to Dallas, but they still lend to lots of Michigan middle market companies. And Stephen, what these companies went through, I mean, these are middle market, small employers that, you know, that it can be your dry cleaner, it, it can be your gym. I mean, it's sheer and, 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 and utter frustration hmm. because Comerica didn't have the website set up. They didn't have this. Everyone's stressed out. They're hearing no one is getting a payment protection right. uh, uh, allocation from, from Comerica. Now that's not entirely true. They 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 did uh, do more small business lending through the payment protection program in a month than they did in a year last year. And Comerica is one of the larger uh, uh, banks for and lenders for SBA. But what this is an example of is why aren't people getting service 
It's that we have a program that didn't get set up properly. And in part, it's because the lights went out quickly Hmm. for a lot of these businesses, and there was just a need to have a backstop like this in place, right? We can't feign revenue for these small businesses, but by golly, we can ensure that they are able to keep their team, that they're able to keep their workforce. You know, for some companies that were fortunate enough to have business interruption insurance, which they couldn't use for this instance, but they could make that example of, that's just what I need, Mm. that my business is being interrupted, and I need to be able to successfully hibernate. And so we're still seeing a little bit of this. There's a lot of the other thing we're seeing, Stephen, is that a lot of changes to this program um, is being made in, are being made in real time, a lot of technicalities. So that's the frustration with the paperwork. A lot of this is also depending on a business's relationship with their lender. And some of our small businesses, they, they you know, they're, they, maybe they've been in business for 30 years and they've just had this nice status quo relationship with their lender. You know, maybe their, their local banker has changed. They also can't go into their local bank. So everyone's calling these 1-800 number lines. And then on top of it, as we've been asking for uh, transparency and just, an, you know, an understanding of where the monies are going, it's not necessarily clear because we can't get access to the data. So Congresswoman Stevens, right, I've had multiple conversations, I mean, not hundreds of conversations, some amazing with companies who've gotten this PPP. Mm-hmm. And they filled out the paperwork, they got it in. They were able to work with their lender. They had some questions maybe at the beginning. I, I, I got some urgent phone calls at the beginning, and then I got the news that they got it. Then there's been some who applied, who've had difficulties. They've had those frustrations that are articulated, and they didn't get it. My read of it is that, and, and the fact that I have is that there, there are tens of thousands of businesses in Michigan who got this, just slightly under 50,000 since we uh, – since the time before we reallocated the funds. Hmm. Program reopens on Monday. Website, the e-tran system that all the banks have to go through, crash. You know, I hear from my bankers, um, you know, because I was calling them, you know, those who I could get access to through the Michigan Bankers Association, you know, what's what's going on. So, you know, it's kind of one day at a time. But my mantra on this, Stephen, is that we've got to treat everyone equally that we are not going to let you fail and that we've got a responsibility as a government. Now, our IRS has no problem collecting taxes or allocating tax returns. And they do this, you know, for every tax paying individual in this <laughs> right, country. Right. And they also collect taxes for every business. So we, we can do this right as a government. We just have to be efficient and effective. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Congresswoman Haley Stevens, who represents Michigan's 11th district in Washington, about federal response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Congresswoman, I want to also talk about the Essential Worker Protection Act, uh, legislation that you've introduced that is meant to protect essential workers through the pandemic. Uh, When it comes to getting them help and protections quickly, is this the kind of thing that will improve that? So there's two things going through the House right now. I'm a committee member on House Education and Labor, Stephen. Um, our chairman of that committee has 
put forward uh, and led on legislation for OSHA standards and strengthening of workforce protections uh, in the workplace in the age of COVID-19. Uh, I know that is uh, heavily supported by many uh, in the, the the workforce right now is something that I've heard a lot about from stakeholders here in Michigan, and it's one of the first things that that I supported uh, moving forward. Uh, Congresswoman uh, Dingle and Talib have also put forward um, supplements to that bill, which I have gladly supported. Um, we need the enforceable standards. If you look at um, the um, if you look at the uh, some of the the actions that we've taken around coronavirus, there's been four packages. Our second package was the Families First Act, and we really pushed for a form of worker protection and uh, a, a, a variation of paid family leave. Um, what has happened with that is that it has not been administered. It was paid family leave for individuals who work at companies of of that small business size that, you know, 500 and under, Stephen. And um, it, maybe some are getting it, but really what we need to do is get paid family leave for everyone. Now, the bill that I have introduced, the Essential Worker Protection Act, uh, is, is, is something that made me think about some of the actions that you, you saw uh, about a decade ago with the auto rescue or the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, mm-hmm. in which an interagency task force was created to administer certain assurances to the public and to stakeholders. This costs no money uh, and is led at the secretary or administrator level. So, I've called for the creation of an interagency task force to be led by the Department of Labor, uh, the Secretary of Department of Labor, uh, to be comprised of the head of the CDC, the FDA, HHS, Department of Transportation, SBA, uh, Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Defense. And the requirement of this agency, besides however they choose to convene this, this vehicle, right, this interagency task force, however they choose to convene and liaise with one another is, is up to them and their design. But the requirement of this is, is that in real time, based on scientific understanding and data and research that we are getting from the CDC and the FDA, that the Department of Labor, Labor will put out on a weekly basis uh, the, the the workforce guidance that we need, and this will go this would go cross industry. I mean, I'm getting this question from our city governments in terms of how they're supposed to come back to work and what the standards or the practices that they are. Now, I'm also the subcommittee chair for research and technology on the House Science Committee, and I oversee in that capacity the nation standards body. Mm-hmm. I've in a previous to being in Congress, I also helped write industry and workforce standards, and they can take years to write. So we also need to be expedient. Now, guidelines are helpful to employers and employees. We're, we, we've seen in Michigan our strong labor unions be able to work very cohesively with their with the their you know in the case of you know General Motors and Chrysler and Ford their their OEs. And we, we reached a consensus here, and they're continuing to reach a consensus through the uh, great history of labor negotiations that we have here. In a place like Iowa, 
where a lot of worker rights have been stripped and chipped away at over the years. You're seeing individuals strike uh, at the um, at some of the meat processing plants, and th- this is this is really complicated and it's really hard because there's an, there, there are outbreaks at, at those plants. There's COVID outbreaks at those plants mm-hmm. even, and and workers are afraid. They're seeing their colleagues get this terrible disease. They're, we're seeing uh, in, in Waterloo, we're starting just like what we've been going through here in southeastern Michigan, we're starting to see death, and, and workers are demanding protection. Now, at the same time, Tyson's, although they don't run our, our entire food supply, is starting to, to warn of a shortage of their product. Now, I've talked to our, our head of uh, the Ag Committee um, in, the, in, in the Senate, our great Senator Debbie Stabenow, mm-hmm. and we are not going to expect food shortages at our grocery stores. The supply chain for food has changed because our schools are closed, our restaurants are largely operating on a, you know, a, a minimized basis, and that's just changed how food is distributed. Uh, what we believe will happen out with the chicken and meat plants is that they will negotiate and reach uh, a, a consensus. And at the same time, we've got to look at, okay, if you're supplying this PPE, and this is something, right, first calls I made when this pandemic hit six, seven weeks ago, I called the grocers. I called my friends who work at grocery stores, and I called the grocers themselves. Do you have what you need in this brand-new environment to operate as an essential business, mm. right? And, and, and there, you know, we were starting to see some headlines here, right, about some of the concern. In fact, in my, my district, in Michigan 11, in four of our grocery stores, we've lost uh, uh, four workers to COVID-19, hmm. right? And, and, but you, yet you've seen with our grocery stores, because people are still going to the grocery store, enhanced safety procedures. Our governors requiring people to wear a mask. We have the plastic guard up. The Iowa's and Kroger have directions now. And we're not saying that this is perfect, right? But what we are saying is that we need to be operating with the full backing and assurances of the federal government based on scientific integrity, which, by the way, Stephen, is another bill I have, which is the Scientific Integrity Act, to maintain and ensure the scientific integrity of our agencies that, uh, that uh, you know, can't be meddled with, with political ideologies or whatever, that it just has to come forward. And this is a bill that Congress has been working on for five years. Yeah. So all of that to say is that we've got to keep workers safe, that this is about everyone's safety, equal safety for, for everyone, and access to information, which is what I'm doing with my essential worker bill. And I can't wait to see that get passed because it doesn't cost the taxpayer any dollars. It's an absolute no-brainer, and it provides everybody with the information that they deserve to operate safely in the workplace. Okay. Haley Stevens, Congresswoman from Michigan's 11th District, it is always great to hear from you. And thanks for being with us here on Detroit Today. Well, I could talk to you all day, Stephen. You're, you're, <laughs> you're a treasure for Southeastern Michigan. Oh, so thank you for nice bringing you. your services and talent <laughs> to our region in this, uh, this different time. You know, yeah. we're so proud of our community and there's so much to be uh, delighted by in terms of the recognition of our heroes who work in nursing homes and, and all throughout our community and then obviously in our hospitals as well. So yeah. thank you so much. Stephen. Yeah, no, thank you very much for your service as well.
All right, up next, we are going to hear from Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, who represents Michigan's 14th district in the U.S. Congress. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. I want to welcome another member of Michigan's Washington delegation to this conversation this morning. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence represents Michigan's 14th district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congresswoman, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you so much, and uh, glad to hear your voice, and pray everything is well with you, and uh Yes, yes. Just it's, tell everyone uh, I can't wait to see you face yeah. to face. <laughs> no, it's a it's a, it's a weird time where I think we're all so thankful just to hear from each other <laughs> and and know that everybody is 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 okay. Uh, I, I, I want to apologize up front for the short time that we have with you, but I I, I do want to get you to talk about this racial disparity that has come up uh, and been highlighted by the coronavirus pandemic. You are one of the members of the Michigan Coronavirus Task Force on Racial Disparities. Uh, but but give us an idea of what you think Congress can be doing to erase these disparities. What, what should be happening at the federal level? So as you know, Stephen, I am um, the only African-American member of the delegation, and I serve on the Congressional Black Caucus. And on the Black Caucus, we have been very vocal and strong on identifying, not only here in Michigan, where 40% of the deaths from the virus are African Americans, and we're only 13% of the population. So the disparity in the facts and the numbers are clear, but this is across the country. In some places, it was high as 70% in a population of 20% uh, 70% 70% were deaths in Louisiana. So what we have asked for is that in this last bill we had, that there was money set aside for testing and mobile testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm proud to say I'm on the governor's uh, task force, and I'm serving on the testing workforce um, uh, t- uh, committee. We know that when we identify the areas, and every state is doing it, they're mapping, they're showing where the deaths and infections are, that we test in those areas so we can stop the spread. Uh, The disparity that um, we're seeing, we went to the CDC and demanded, or directed is the word we use, not demand, direct, the CDC to gather data based on race. And we found the Hispanic population, the Asian Pacific, and African American, we are all disproportionately affected by um, health uh, underlying conditions. We also said that CDC, you must add race, because in some cases, they weren't even gathering it. So we didn't have a realistic picture. Then the second part of that, we must report release this report publicly. We want you to release it to the public so we know. There's a lot of data that's gathered in from D.C. that we never know about until something happens and then it kind of creeps out. And then the third thing, this is the important thing, 
it was heartbreaking to me whenever I talked to a health professional. Yeah, African Americans are dying more because they're sicker. They have all these conditions. And so the virus just goes in and attacks, you know, if your heart is weak, it attacks your heart. If you're diabetic, it attacks your kidneys, you know, if you are um, have asthma or whatever. So the third part that we directed, and this will be in the next bill that we are sending out, we call it a CARES 2 uh, bill, is that we will direct them to come up with a plan. What do we do with these disparities? And I want everyone here to know it, it is not a time for us to sit back and say, well, it's the African-Americans' fault. They shouldn't, uh, they should live better. We have so many issues. We have food deserts, poverty. We have historic distrust of the medical profession. There's some great grandparents and grandparents who, like, no, they try to, you know, they still know the stories of their parents where the medical industry did trials that killed them, the syphilis um, research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, we have Jim Clyburn, who is a sitting member of Congress right now, who said he remembers as a little boy having to go into the back of the doctor's office and the colored only door. Mm-hmm. So there are so many, so many things that's going into this, and then bias. Um, we are doing a concerted effort and push to reduce the number of maternal mortalities in America. I sit on the women's caucus and die at a higher rate from childbirth in this country than a lot of the um, underdeveloped countries. Mm-hmm. And when we d- dug into that, African Americans are the largest groups that are dying from maternal mortality. And so then we looked at that and what we're finding is that there's bias, a and it's not only African Americans, it's poor. If you walk in and you're not a person of stature and you say something's wrong, I don't feel right, uh, they'll say, oh, you're fine, go home, you're just pregnant. Mm-hmm. Where if a wealthy and white woman walks in and says something's wrong, there's this instant where well, let's find out what it is. Yep. And all the medical professions say, you know, we need to start transitioning to bias training for our doctors. So it's so much going into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Congresswoman, I again apologize for the short time. We will have you back, of course, to talk more about this issue and others. And we, of course, hope you are doing well during the pandemic. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.